Hey, everybody. Um, uh, so uh, thanks to Bruce Cummer in the back who is holding up bags for Catonsville Emergency Assistance. Please, if you get it, especially if you live locally, uh, if you could grab one of those on your way out uh, and then next week bring them back with the items, with filled, filled with the items that are listed on, that, um, uh, on the page that's written on the bag. Uh, because uh, what we're doing is we're going to uh, be involved in a, um, in a food pantry a truck fill-up at the Knights of Columbus in a few weeks, uh, and we want to make sure that um, we pack that truck full of items um, that, uh, for people in need in our community. Uh, so please, if you would, grab one of those bags on your way out today. So anyway, good morning. Welcome to New Hope. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. We are going at breakneck speed through the book of Daniel. Um, and we're going to celebrate communion today, the Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, in a few minutes. So if you haven't had a chance to grab one of the uh, little communion elements, um, uh, cups, please, they are available at the back, uh, and you could pick up there if, you could, if you'd like to raise your hand. I'm sure somebody can get those to you if you'd like. Just, just a word about the sanctuary before we start the sermon today. If you're looking around, you'll, you'll notice that the sanctuary is kind of it's being stripped for parts. Um, and uh, just, just a couple of things. Um, yeah, the, the, I, I, we didn't know how much they were going to, to take. Um, first of all, you might know uh, that we don't own this building. Uh, we rent this building, uh, and we have a good relationship with the Episcopal Diocese of Maryland, who does own the building, um, and we are honored to use this space, this, this historic space, this, this, uh, this land, this space has been a church, um, home to the church uh, since 1845, and we are honored to continue in, in that tradition uh, that St. Timothy's has been here since 1845, and, and we're honored to be here, uh, but we don't own the space. Um, and a few years ago, as you'll recall, they attempted to plant an Episcopal congregation here. Um, and uh, that, after a couple of times of trying that, it, it ultimately they decided that um, they felt God wasn't calling this particular building to be a home for an Episcopal congregation in the future. And that is one of the reasons why they decided to start removing some of the more valuable items in order to, to sell them and, you know, have ministry for the purposes of ministry operations. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that's certainly their prerogative, uh, but it's also admittedly a sad and difficult loss for us because they were beautiful. Um, and as far as I know, I tried to ask directly, although I, they don't give me all the answers that I'd like, uh, as far as I know, the, the circular uh, glass windows from in the back and then also these ones behind the altar, they're not going anywhere, uh, so praise God for that. Um, but, uh, of course, this is also a reminder to us especially for those of us that come from a more, uh, from a lower church tradition. Um, it's just a reminder that, uh, that, that, that our God is not found in items crafted by human hands. Uh, and it's certainly not um, in uh, things like stained glass windows and, and even the mosaic, which was behind the altar, which they, they are planning on like patching that up. That's not going to look like that forever. Uh, they're going to they're gonna clean that up. And they're doing a lot more repair. Um, but I also think that it's important for us to, to, to think about, okay, you know, once they, once they kind of are done with their repair work, this does give us an opportunity to say, okay, well, if it's not going to be stained glass windows in here, are there other things that the church, you guys, um, us, uh, maybe there are other things that we could do to 
decorate the sanctuary in a way that's a little bit, well, that's actually what the diocese told me. They said, are there ways that you could decorate the sanctuary in a way that is going to be more uh, reflective of New Hope's character? And so, well, I like that. Okay, cool. So maybe that's a conversation that we need to have. So if you're looking around and going, wow, maybe we could put something up. Maybe we could, could, could decorate this space um, in a different way or make this place a little bit more hospitable. Um, all of that's on the table. So please, if, you, if anything comes to mind, um, if you find yourself drifting away from the, the, from the details of today's sermon, for instance, um, you know, you can, you can come to me and we can talk about that. So, <sighs> With that being said, we are continuing today in our series, Bridges to Babylon. And like I said, I'd like to invite you to turn with, the, turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. There is a tension when it comes to learning from our elders. Um, on one hand, you might think that it would be thoroughly convenient that a current generation can not only see the mistakes, but also the successes of a previous generation, learn from them, and then create a society that much better for the future, right? The truth is that that is rarely the case. We're a stubborn people, and usually the standard rule seems to be that we need to learn lessons for ourselves. John Adams is quoted as saying, he said, I must study politics and war that my son's may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. Adams was often an idealist, which is one of the many reasons he is my favorite founding father. But sadly, over 200 years later, politics and war are still very much with us. On the other hand, there still might be a foundational truth to Adams' words. When a parent makes the necessary sacrifices to create a home environment that is conducive to health and growth, They do so because they believe that foundation can be built upon in decades to come. And that foundation doesn't need to be all cushions and rainbows, right? I mean, look at the Marine Corps, for instance. They put individuals through a boot camp that breaks them down in order to build them back up into what they need to be for the moment. So sometimes we find that the best thing that we can do to help a a generation, to train up a generation, is to withhold the privilege from them until they're ready to receive it. This, as you know, is... Called discipline. Discipline isn't just about punishing wrongdoing. It's about encouraging healthy habits. A good personal trainer isn't just going to stand there and point at what you're doing wrong and tell you you're lifting the weights the wrong way. They're going to go and they're going to show you how to do it correctly and they're going to watch to see if you drift, start to drift back into the old habits as you get tired. It's been cynically said that hard times create strong men, and strong men create good times, and good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. There may be some truth to that, but history shows that things are actually far more complicated. Still, this story that we see today in Daniel 5 is the story of a king who failed to learn from a previous generation. The first four chapters of the book of Daniel tell us of how Daniel and his friends were taken from their homeland and exiled by King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, the imperial superpower of the 6th century BC. Now, you probably noticed by now, you've probably noticed by now, that the stories of the book of Daniel are rather cyclical. 
In each instance of Daniel 1, 2, 3, and 4, something happens that shows off the king's power, and then Daniel and and or his friends are put in some difficult situation where they need to stand up for what they believe in, and in each instance, they also show this remarkable amount of patience. That's really something that stuck out to me as we're going through the series, this remarkable amount of patience towards this king who has enslaved them. So they make their stake stand, and they speak truth to the king, and they accept whatever the consequences might be, and then God honors their stand, and the king ends up learning a lesson about how God's kingdom is far more powerful than anything Babylon can dream up. We saw it with the vegetables in chapter 1. We saw it with the dreams in chapter 2. We saw it with the fiery furnace in chapter 3. And last week, we saw it with the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar. So for all of that, you can see the first four books of the book of Daniel, first four, first four chapters of Daniel. But now, chapter 5. The first words we read are, King Belshazzar, okay, there's another king on the throne, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. So, evidently, King Nebuchadnezzar is no more. Eventually, we'll discover that, that, that Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son. So we wonder, has the son learned his father's lessons? Or will this cycle that we've been seeing in the first four chapters just keep repeating themselves, repeating itself? Well, Belshazzar has this great feast, and the wine is flowing. In fact, it's flowing a little too much, if you know what I mean. Not only is he having this big party with his friends, he's also doing it in view of a crowd. So everybody can see, you know, this is how the king throws a party. And so far, Junior isn't doing so well, and things are only going to go from bad to worse. Like I said, the wine is flowing, and and there's the king, and he's kind of like, you know, sitting back, and he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Hey, guys, I got this idea. He's, He's got this idea. He says, hey, you remember when my father, the great king, invaded Judah? Well, you know, we actually have a whole bunch of their cups and stuff in the back, like, like silver and gold cups that we stole from their temple. Um, I had an idea. Let's go get them, and let's bring them in here, and let's just get drunk from them. Let's just start drinking from them. <laughs> that, that, that's going to honor the gods of Babylon, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with feasts. In fact, as a sidebar, side note, if you ever truly want to get to the bottom of like the spiritual dis- discipline of fasting, you would do well to study equally the discipline of feasting. Christians should know how to celebrate because we know more than others why we should do so, right? So, no, feasting can be a very good thing, but, but this is not a feast of celebration that the king is throwing. This is a feast of immature indulgence. Here we see a picture of a young king with Too much power that he hasn't earned, trying to show off in front of his friends and doing so supposedly in the name of of worship to the Babylonian gods. It's an image that we see repeated again and again in literature, in movies, um, but also sadly just it's in history. Power is handed over to the next generation, only they weren't ready to receive it. And they operate out of a sense of entitlement, spoiled entitlement, rather than maturity. And then the things that had been worked for by the previous generation are lost. We see it in families. 
We see it in kingdoms. We see it in businesses. We see it in churches. Back to the story. So the king's partying with his friends, right? Drinking wine from the chalices of Israel's temple. Picking up in verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand, a little creepy, right? The fingers of a human hand appeared and started writing on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. So the reason why that's put it there, it's it's in view. There's like a spotlight on it. So everybody can see what's going on. And this, this hand starts writing on the wall. And the king sees this hand, and, 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 and the king says the king's color changed. He went white, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees started knocking together. I mean, this is straight out of Scooby-Doo. So it's like Wild Scoob. You know, the king calls loudly. He's like, ah, bring in the enchanters, bring in Chaldeans, bring in astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, hey, hey guys, 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 come in here. You, you got to see this. I don't know what's going on, but anybody who reads this writing, anybody who reads this writing right now and shows me the interpretation shall be clothed in, clothed in purple and, and they're going to have a chain of gold around their neck and they'll be the, the third pious ruler in the kingdom. Here is another sign of immaturity. So something mysterious happens and the first thing the king looks to do is kind of use his own limited authority to understand this thing of awe and wonder. Yeah, I mean, he's freaked out, but if your knees are knocking together, that means they aren't on the floor. He calls in the wise men to read the writing on the wall, and he offers them fame and fortune if they're able to offer proper interpretation. So something like something mysterious and beautiful and wonderful happens, and he wants to control it. Don't get me wrong, I think we're called to use our minds to interpret faith. We saw that last week, but, but never at the expense of dismissing the mystery. I have a degree from Grand Canyon University, but I've never seen the Grand Canyon. It's on my bucket list. And if I do ever get to see it, I hope that the first thing that comes to mind when I see this grand thing it is not, well, you know, I think that this was formed a few million years ago by, you know, whatever. No, I hope that the first thought, the first thing that I'm struck by is the, the awestruck, I hope I'm awestruck by the beauty and majesty of this God who placed this incredible sight before my eyes. This might seem a little bit wishy-washy, but I think that sometimes, sometimes we can be so blinded by our attempts to, to understand a mystery. I want to get to the bottom of this thing. When, when sometimes all God wants to do is get our attention. Sometimes all, all God wanted me to do was look at the Grand Canyon. Look at this thing in front of you. Look at this awesome sight that is in front of you. And just sit in awe and wonder. More often than not, he's he's first and foremost calling us to to look at the world around us and and to sit in the awe and wonder of his creation. And when this this is when looking at a natural beauty or looking at the face, looking at the face of a of a newborn child. I mean, have you ever held a newborn child in your hands and like I don't have words to describe what I'm going through right now, and that's okay. You don't need to have words, you just need to look at this child that you're holding. Or, or if you're listening to a piece of music and, you, and you're, just, you're, you're hearing these instruments play or you're hearing these, these, these singers sing and you're listening to these lyrics and you're like, wow, oh, gosh, this is doing something in my heart, but I'm, I don't know if I can quite explain it. That's okay. 
Sometimes the most important thing that we can do is just sit in awe and wonder. The king's not doing that. The king wants to understand it. The king wants to control it. The king wants to use his power over it. So we're told that Belshazzar's knees are knocking. Zoinks! I like saying that. It appears that he is reacting in fear rather than responding to mystery. He offers fame and fortune to anyone who can read the writing on the wall, but it's to no avail. The wise men of the court can't for the life of them understand it. Again, here's a lesson that Belshazzar might have learned from his father. But then we read, starting in verse 10, we get who I believe, I might be incorrect on this, but I believe this is now the first woman to enter the story of the book of Daniel. We read, starting in verse 10, that the queen learns of this incident and she comes in to see the king. Now, there's a couple of ways that folks have interpreted this over the years. We might read that word queen exactly as it appears in most versions of our Bible, meaning that this was the king's senior wife. We'd already heard about his wives before, so evidently he has more than one wife, but maybe this is his like senior wife who who wasn't invited to the party along with the other wives for reasons that we can speculate. If that's the case, you could imagine how difficult it must have been for the queen to enter the room with her husband drunk and scared to death with other women trying to console him. But the word queen doesn't actually necessarily need to mean his wife. This could be a reference to the queen mother, the wife of Nebuchadnezzar and mother to the king. And if that's the case, you could also imagine how it felt to her to walk into this room and to see her drunk son barking orders in attempts to control things that he knows little about. Regardless, she says, O king, live forever, which is one of the most common things that people say when they're talking to the king. Probably a good idea, you know. O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods, in in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, you know, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, who has repeatedly shown you that not only does he care for the king, but also uh, that, that this guy is you know, connected in a holy way, in a, in a divine way to God. Uh, the, 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 all this stuff was found in Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, Now, let Daniel be called, and he's going to show you the interpretation. So this wise woman comes into the room and says, hey, you remember what happened 30 years ago, or however long this was? We don't know. You know, Daniel was the one who again and again and again um, actually helped your father, the king. Why, Why don't you call him in? So whether this was his wife or his mother, now we see this individual enter the story and who had knowledge of things that came before. I mean, have you ever been given control of something um, and your first thought was, I'm going to wipe the slate clean? At times, this could be a good thing, right? Um, you, know, you know, we won't start from scratch. We may, after all, you know, maybe we were a part of the previous administration 
And we know firsthand its shortcomings. But sometimes, sometimes what can happen is that our ambition can blind us to the good things that came before, and we end up throw the baby out with the bathwater. And some things which should not have been forgotten are lost. The king listens to the queen, though, and they call in Daniel. And Daniel comes into the room, and you can kind of sense the tone of the king as Daniel stands before him. I mean, everybody's scared to death, the king especially. Yet, you know, the king is kind of like clinging to this prideful control. And he, maybe, he, maybe he put on like a big show. Maybe he's sitting on his throne, or he's, he's doing something to try to intimidate Daniel. And he's like, you're Daniel. You're one of the exiles of uh, Judah whom my father brought from Judah. Remember that. Um, So I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, all my other wise guys, they've they've been brought in to help me read this writing on the wall thing because this is kind of weird. And I want to know the interpretation, but they couldn't tell it to me. But uh, if you're able to read the interpretation, make it known to me, then... uh, you shall be clothed in, in purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and hey, you're going to be the third highest ruler in my kingdom. Now, this is years later from the whole fiery furnace and vegetable incident. Daniel has by now, not that he was, you know, any love before, but, but Daniel by now has learned the lessons of exile. He's learned that exile is a time when you are pulled from everything you know in order to be shown everything that you have. And now he stands before the king. He stands before the king, a a wise prophet, a seasoned Jedi master. And Daniel opens his mouth and he speaks to the king with gentleness. He speaks to the king with with a reserved strength. Let your gifts be for yourself. And give your rewards to another. I'll read the writing on the wall. And I'll offer your majesty the interpretation. But before I do that, you should know that the Most High God, the God of Israel, the one true king, gave your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. There's no way around that. God granted him authority and the nations trembled in fear Before your father, the king, the people he sought to kill, he killed. The people he wanted alive, he supported. And when he demanded his humble servants to act like humble servants, he humbled them. Here's something you may not know or maybe something you just forgot. In time, your father became intoxicated with power intoxicated with pride that swelled in his heart. So God brought him down from his kingly throne for for a time. His glory was taken from him and he was driven into the wilderness in order to live with wild beasts. He spent years on his knees, his hands, his knees, feeding from the grass of the field until he learned his lesson, until he learned that the Most High God rules and reigns. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by Yahweh, the God of Israel, whose cups you guys are drinking from right now. Anyway, 
You, O king, you have not humbled your heart. And none of this is news to you, right? (laughs) I wonder if your queen wanted me to remind you. Because you have, verse 23, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have prayed the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone. They've praised the creation rather than the creator, right? Which, which do not see or hear or know these things that you're worshiping. They have no power. But, but this God, the God that I serve, the God who literally puts breath in your mouth and every breath you breathe by his grace, this God you have dishonored, you have forgotten, you have sacrificed, you have compromised everything for a good time. You want to know what this writing on the wall means, king? He had written, the, the hand had written, mene, mene, tekel, parson. Mene, numbered. As in, God has numbered the days of your rule and reign. Tekel, weighed. As in, God has weighed your so-called kingdom and it has been found wanting. And, and parson, Perez, divided. As in, your empire is soon going to be divided among the Medes and the Persians. End of speech. We don't know if King Belshazzar learned the lesson because only two more things happen in the story. First, he makes good on his promise and he, yet again, Daniel is promoted. But also, and and Daniel's made the third highest ruler of the kingdom. But, But then, that very night, The king is killed, perhaps by the hands of an enemy or perhaps because he just stopped breathing. But so ends the short rule of King Belshazzar of Babylon. So what do we take from this? So what? For me, this week, it has been a reminder to pay attention to my elders. I don't mean the church elders, although they're swell. I mean those who have lived longer on this planet than I have. Personally, I wouldn't want to be a part of a church that didn't honor seniors. I think it's such a privilege that we get to hear from from someone, like last summer we got to hear from Dan Broadwater, who served in pastoral ministry for over 40 years before retiring, and he would serve us by coming in occasionally and, and sharing with us his wisdom. That's a precious treasure. But even more importantly than that, I want to be a part of a church that celebrates a life well-lived and listens to experienced men and women who can provide us words of caution and perspective. That said, I also want to be a part of a church that reminds seniors that the race isn't over. As long as we draw breath, as long as you draw breath, God has a purpose for your life. In an age that worships youth, maybe this story reminds us of that truth just as the queen came into the throne room to remind the king of Daniel's skills, we need elders in our church to remind us of the trials and tribulations that came before and to remind us that God brought us through them then and he will again. See, this commandment to honor your father and mother does not become obsolete when we become parents. 
It doesn't even become obsolete when our parents pass away. See, we honor our parents, whether they are with us or not, by remembering the wisdom they offered us and respecting the sacrifices that they made for us. May we never become that spoiled young ruler, blinded by ambition and pride, forgetting that the blessings of today are there because of the sweat and blood of yesterday. And in the same spirit, may we never forget that all history is a process. Building on the wisdom of yesterday, we can do the best we can for the today, in the, the, the day in front of us, and always do that with the present hope that God will continue to be faithful to us as he always has. He will continue to be faithful to us in the future. You see, it's true, history is it's cyclical. Sometimes it, it seems like humanity just keeps making the, the same mistakes over and over again, and we think, oh gosh, when will we learn, God? King Belshazzar was an imperfect king, just as Nebuchadnezzar before him was an imperfect king. But remember, one of the main reasons why Israel was in exile was because they didn't have perfect kings either, and the people didn't live the way they were supposed to live like they were God's people. That's why they were in exile in the first place. Even the best examples of Israel's mighty kings fall far short of what they needed to be for their people. We see that same story repeated over and over again with, throughout history, not only in the biblical history, but, you know, but, 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 the, but the history of Western civilization, the history of the world. But the reason why we're here today is because the one true king... The, the king of Daniel, the most high God, acted in history in a way that nobody expected. The reason why we gather here this morning, the reason why we come to this table, is because the one true God, the most high God, acted in history in a way that nobody expected. King Jesus broke this cycle. He, was, he came down to stop the madness. King Jesus broke the cycle by stepping onto the pages of history, not as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant. On the cross, on the cross we see that the one true king of the universe, conquering, we see the one true God of the universe, conquering the so-called kingdoms of the world by how? By dying for the sins of humanity in an act of pure, sacrificial love. Pure sacrificial love. That's the thing that the kingdoms of the world don't get. This table before us, the communion, mass, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, this, this is our feast. It's a celebration not only of Christ's sacrifice, but also his lordship, his kingship. See, in Christ, we have the one true king, the one who breaks the cycle of history's imperfections in order to offer us hope in his kingdom, and in his new creation, which is bursting forth right now in the midst of this one. God's plan was that in King, in King Jesus, this is Ephesians 1.10, God's plan was that in King Jesus, he would unite all things, things in heaven and on earth, in a move of cosmic reconciliation. I was actually watching, uh, this is funny, I was watching a TV show, my son was watching a TV show, and I was just passing through the, uh, through the, through the, through the kitchen the other day, um, and, the, and the, the, on the show, a, a, a smart aleck kid was sitting in church service, and uh, the, the, the pastor quoted, for God so loved the world, um, that he gave his only begotten son, and, and the smart aleck kid raises his hand and says, when, when, when it says world, 
is that world like earth or is it like universe? And the pastor responded, um, world, I guess. He was wrong. And I, that's wrong. I said, the word in the Greek is cosmos. You know, you know what English word we get from the Greek word cosmos? Cosmos. <laughs> Cosmic reconciliation is the business. For God so loved the cosmos. For God so loved the universe that he desires to unite all things in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we're a part of that too. How are we a part of that? We too are new creation. We are a new creature saved by grace. This is Ephesians 2.10. Saved by grace through faith for works. Works that he has prepared for us. See, the love offered by God in Christ is offered to us freely. Not because of anything we've done, but because of who he is. We acknowledge this gift by bowing a knee, not by, not by our knees knocking, but by bowing a knee to King Jesus and committing our lives fully to the mystery of his rule and reign. And in so doing, we see that, that it was all for a purpose. Friends, did you know that, that there is something unique that you and only you can offer to the king. We, we've said it before, no one else can give your praises to God but you. And, and those praises not only take the form of singing and speaking, they also take the form of the work that you do in this world, the work you do to help build for the kingdom of God. He wants to remake you. God wants to remake you into a new creation. He wants to remake you into the best version of yourself, the you that he created you to be. He wants sin to not be in your life. He wants you to confess those sins, not because sins are naughty, not because sins are something that, you know, oh, you're breaking the rules. No, because sins, sin hurts the things that God cares the most about, you and me. Sin hurts us, and that's why he wants us to be free of them. That's why he went to the cross. He offers us forgiveness for any sins, no matter what happened back there. If you came here this morning with sin, with with, with thoughts of, of, of regret on your heart, God wants you to know this morning that there is nothing back there that he cannot forgive. There is nothing back there that he cannot redeem. He just wants you to surrender. Bow a knee to his rule and reign and trust that he will be with you for eternity. One of the ways that we were remind ourselves of, of these truths um, is every time we say we, every time we take communion, we, we say as a church the words of the Nicene Creed. This is an ancient creed; uh, creed's been around for thousands of years. Although we're using a you know a, a more of a contemporary translation of it, but but this is something. These are principles that have been that have been passed down um, th- through the church over the past two thousand years. Um, and so when we say the creed, it is, it's as if we're saying to the past. We want to learn from a previous generation. We want to take what they, what they knew and we want to apply it to today. So when we say these things, we are participating in an ancient ritual that matters to today. 